You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, O'Reilly's Max Slocum chats with Ben Lorica, O'Reilly's chief data scientist and host of the O'Reilly Data Show podcast. Ben talks about emerging themes in the data space, from machine learning to deep learning to artificial intelligence, and how those technologies relate to one another and how they're fueling real-time data applications. Ben also talks about how the concept of a data center is evolving, the importance of open-source big data components, and the rise in interest of big data ethics. Enjoy the episode. So Ben, over the course of the last year plus, there's a handful of themes that you have been actively investigating related to the data space. What's been most active or interesting around these themes? Um, so I, I would frame it as one of, uh, in uh, one phrase, actually. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've really been excited about is uh, kind of the emergence of intelligent real-time data applications. And uh, let me go through each of those aspects actually individually. So first of all, in the, in the area of intelligence, so machine learning, uh, there's been a lot of interesting things happening. So one thing in particular has stood out and that's deep learning. So over the course of the last year, deep learning has gone from a research concept to a full-blown engineering application. In fact, uh, there was a recent article interview of the CEO of NVIDIA, and NVIDIA is a a processor company that uh, supplies GPUs, which are used for deep learning computations. And he said that uh, two years ago, they were talking to 100 companies interested in using deep learning. And he said this year they're supporting 3,500. So, and uh, he na- rattled off a bunch of industries: so fi- medical imaging, financial services, advertising, and and so on and so forth. Um, a few things have happened that have made deep learning kind of uh, very very successful uh, in many of these domains. First of all, uh, we've been talking about the rise in uh, data sets large corpuses of labeled data sets for which they can train these deep learning algorithms. Over the last 10 years, there have been improvements in terms of these algorithms themselves as to how to scale them into larger data sets and uh, results. So they've had they've produced really great results. And as you know, we're in kind of in a results-driven society. If you produce accurate predictions, then uh, that leads to ROI, which means jobs, and which means uh, everything gets really interesting at that point. And I, I would say that just over the last year or two, uh, on in the open source side, I, I guess both in the open source and, and uh, commercial software side, there have been many more tools and libraries for doing deep learning. And so in many ways, it, they, it's become a little more accessible to more people. But having said that, it's still not, you know, it's still it's still kind of the domain of uh, experts in many ways because I think that uh, it's been portrayed in the media as kind of this uh, magical algorithm that can uh, produce uh, many fantastic results. But people forget that uh, even though it can automate some of the key steps in a machine learning task, particularly feature engineering. It does still require expertise, particularly in designing some of the architectures, tuning hyperparameters, and uh, a few other technical things. So, but I think the number of people who are skilled in in uh, in uh, deploying and uh, training deep learning models is growing uh, by the day. So the developments in deep learning has inspired ideas from other parts of machine learning as well. So deep learning is one approach for uh, doing machine learning. And uh, recently, people have 
kind of been inspired by deep learning by just taking a step back and looking at how does deep learning work. So in many ways, they've realized that uh, it's really a sequence of steps in a pipeline. And in each step, you get uh, better and better representations of your data culminating in some kind of predictive task. So I think that uh, people have realized that if they can kind of automate some of these uh, machine learning pipelines in a way that deep learning does, then maybe they can provide alternative approaches. So in fact, one of the things that's happened a lot recently is uh, that people will use deep learning for particularly the feature engineering, uh, feature representation step in the machine learning task and then apply another algorithm at the end to do the actual uh, prediction. Uh, there's a group out of UC Berkeley, Amp Lab, the famed Amp Lab that produced Apache Spark, and they recently built a machine learning pipeline on top of Spark, which some of the example uh, pipelines that they ship with are pipelines that you normally associate with deep learning, such as images, speech, and text. So what they did was they built a series of primitives that you can uh, understand how each of these uh, uh, primitive component works, and then you just piece them together in the pipeline. So, and then they optimize the pipeline for you. So in many ways, they mimic uh, what uh, a deep learning architecture does, but maybe they provide more transparency because you know exactly what's happening in each step of this pipeline. So the other thing that's interesting in machine learning is I think uh, more and more people have uh, uh, been talking about augmentation. Uh, and I would say that in particular, there's two things that uh, jump out at me. So I've talked a lot about active learning in the past. So this is where uh, you kind of combine humans and machines. So humans can uh, do some of the decisions that machines are poor at. And, uh, and then machines can automate the rest. So active learning is normally associated with simple tasks like labeling data, like images, categorizing images into one category or another. For some applications, you want that to be 100% correct. So for example, the porn, not porn question. So uh, some situations like that, people combine humans and machines. So for higher accuracy, you put humans in the loop of your uh, pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, there's also people who talk about augmentation for higher order tasks. So for example, Stitch Fix is a company that I like to talk about. They use machine learning recommenders. So this is a company that basically recommends uh, clothing and, and fashion apparel to uh, women. So they use machine learning to generate a series of recommendations, but then uh, human fashion experts actually take those recommendations and filter them further. So in, a, so in many ways, it's, it's right. It's the true uh, example of augmentation in that uh, humans are always in the loop of the decision-making process. So ma machine learning is interesting in itself, but uh, for intelligent applications, I think what's really captured the imagination of people recently is kind of uh, the re-emergence of the term AI, right? So artificial intelligence. I think there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one is, I think that there are good examples, but also I think uh, there have been a series of books that actually have highlighted some of these examples. So I think some of the ones that come to mind are the ones written by John Markov of the New York Times, Pedro Domingos of the University of Washington, and uh, Jerry Kaplan also had a good book. So a lot of the excitement around 
uh, AI, I think, would could be safely classified as narrow AI in the sense that it's uh, AI for very specific tasks. So I think the one that people always cite is, is the one around autonomous vehicles, right? So self-driving cars. But then there's a bunch of AI applications that came out of games, uh, culminating in uh, the recent uh, victory of DeepMind's AlphaGo over the one of the top Go players in the world. Other applications of narrow AI kind of tools would be uh, in health. So it's interesting that I think in many ways, IBM Watson and its uh, triumph over humans in jeopardy kind of brought back the uh, AI to the pub public imagination. And uh, the domain that they chose to focus first for commercial applications is health. And uh, robot investment managers is another is another example. But in many ways, like I said, so these are applications that are very uh, narrow and, and specific to a domain. And I think where, uh, you know, if, if you were to talk to experts, there's lots of unresolved problems around uh, in machine learning before we can uh, begin to even talk about true AI, right? So uh, can I just to drop in for a quick second there in regards to narrow AI versus I guess, broad AI or true AI in the sense that we've traditionally thought of it is, is really the distinction simply that narrow AI is focused on a specific task or a specific outcome, whereas broader AI is this all-encompassing, somewhat sentient thing? Yeah, I guess in many ways, uh, the tools that we see now, uh, many of them still rely on um, labeled data, right? So past, mm -hmm. past games or or, or images that you know are a cat or a dog and you label and you pass it through an algorithm. So I think deep learning people, and Jan Lahun in particular, has this distinction where he points out that, you know, um, if you think of uh, machine learning as playing a role of in AI, there's really three parts to it, unsupervised learning, supervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Uh, so he, he, he talks about unsupervised learning as being the cake, supervised learning as being the icing on the cake, and reinforcement learning as being the cherry on the cake. And he 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 says that uh, the problem is we don't know how to build the cake. So there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of unsolved problems in unsupervised learning. And by the way, he's not the only person in the, the deep learning community who who points that out. But uh, I think sometimes the press gets ahead of themselves, right? So so in an <laughs> unsupervised learning setting, basically you just I guess uh, think of it this way, right? So if you think of a simple machine learning task like classifying something right so here's a bunch of images uh, classify them into different buckets is this a dog cat and, and so on and so forth so supervised learning would be build a classifier using this labeled data right so here's some examples based on these examples come up with an algorithm that, that will classify the other examples right so reinforcement learning is more of a sequential task right so where you classify this data if you get get it right i give you a uh, Reward. If not, I give you a punishment, right? So, so that's so. I think it came, uh, it came back to the imagination when uh, the DeepMind guys started using it to train their alg uh, their uh, algorithm to play Go, right? So in a in a game like Go, where you have immediate uh, feedback as to whether or not you uh, not Go uh, Atari. So in a game like Atari, when you have immediate feedback, uh, reinforcement learning really works well in there. So, so those that's supervised and reinforcement, but unsupervised is basically here's a bunch of pictures, 
right. organize it, and then learn how to build a classifier, right? So from scratch, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, there's still a lot of uh, things that need to be uh, uh, solved in the area of supervised learning before we get into, I think, I guess, uh, Matt, the uh, gradations that people talk about is narrow AI, general, and then the super intelligence, right? So, right. And and a lot of the discussion around AI right now actually is uh, probably people projecting into the future when we have general AI and super intelligence. What are the safety and ethical implications of that? So, is is the conversation in those domains? Is it really getting ahead of itself? Uh, I think uh, I think it's good to have these discussions now. So I don't mm -hmm. know if it's necessarily ahead of itself, but I think there's uh, uh, there's uh, many many opinions in terms of uh, the time frame. I see, but it's yeah. still useful to be engaging in that dialogue. Yeah, because uh, otherwise it might be too late. We might be working for the androids. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to talk about it before that happens. Yes. So, I so there are there are actually I guess there are at least uh, uh, kind of developments around machine learning just kind of recasting even some of the things that uh, people ha have done around machine learning in 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 the language of ai so for example in text i think people are familiar with the term natural language processing mm -hmm. and text mining uh, now i think people are starting to uh, frame it in terms of natural language understanding right so not just processing just machine reading with some comprehension of what it's reading and then sim similarly in, in vision, you know, you go from object recognition to visual understanding, you know. And there's some early results, very preliminary results in these areas of, of here's, a, here's, a, here's an image, uh, use an algorithm. I think mostly at this point it's uh, deep learning to produce some kind of caption. And there's some preliminary results in that area. But at the end of the day, uh, I think AI and machine learning in general will require the ability to to basically do feature extraction intelligently. So feature extraction. So in in, in technical terms, if you have uh, if you think of machine learning as uh, as uh, discovering some kind of function functional mapping from one space to the other, here's an image, map it into a category. Then what you really are talking about is a, a function that requires an, that requires variables. So these variables are are features. And so I think there's uh, one of the areas I'm excited about is uh, just people who are able to take unstructured information like text, images, and turning it into structured information. Because once you go from unstructured information to structured information, the structured information then you can use as features in uh, machine learning algorithms. So there's a company that came out of Stanford's deep dive project uh, called Lattice.io that is doing interesting things in this area where they are taking uh, text and images and, and basically extracting structured information from these uh, uh, unstructured data sources. At uh, basically human level accuracy, but obviously, since they're doing it uh, using computers, they can scale as machine scale. So I, I think basically this will unlock a lot of data sources that normally people would not use for uh, predictive purposes. Yeah, it seems like that would be a 
pretty powerful breakthrough. Um, so I, I frame this as in terms of intelligent, real-time applications, so real-time and in, in streaming in general, uh, explosion in tools <laughs> and interests. I mean, strat, in Strata plus Hadoop world, I think, is still the place to learn about these tools individually uh, in the frameworks, but also the architectures and best practices for uh, piecing together these tools. I think at this point, people are still talking about infrastructure a lot and architecture, but I'm, you know, applications are starting to creep into, into the discussion, right? So in terms of, uh, I think uh, uh, there's a more and more discussion around applications that go beyond just uh, data processing and simple counting to analytics. So uh, for example, uh, there's a startup called Anadot that's doing massive uh, time series analysis, right? So uh, massively scalable platform for uh, uh, time series analysis where they can detect correlations, uh, anomalies, and then just basically do that for a business analyst for, where they can drill down in real time. And then uh, the Spark community has uh, uh, done a lot of uh, interesting work recently in terms of opening up real-time streams into tools that the data scientists are familiar with, like uh, interactive analysis using SQL or machine learning library. So they can, so using Spark uh, and Spark's uh, common programming uh, interface, they can, they can apply not just real-time processing uh, paradigms, but also interactive analysis and machine learning. Let's see, so in terms of applications, real-time, many of these tools came out of IT operations, the people managing data centers. And obviously, uh, the early consumers on the business side were people on, in media, right? So you probably, Matt, have been uh, all over real-time dashboards for a while, right? Looking sure. at how uh, mm -hmm. articles are doing. But also marketing and advertising folks have been always in the leading edge. But there's new domains that I'm excited about as well. So, uh, so in, in generally, I think many of these real-time applications sometimes get lumped under IoT, right? So the Internet of Things. But for example, manufacturing, uh, there's initiatives across the, the world actually around uh, combining real-time big data processing tools to make manufacturing smarter. So in Europe, uh, I think uh, Germany uh, has led this initiative. It's called Industry 4.0. In the U.S., I think people think of GE and the industrial internet. And uh, the Chinese government has launched an initiative last year called Made in China 2025. So here, uh, I think the the early applications will be around uh, just uh, wiring your factory floor, measuring the heck out of everything using sensors and and uh, and using some of these real-time big data frameworks to do uh, uh, to mine that data but I think uh, there's also the combination of AI and robotics for some of these uh, manufacturing applications the other application I'm uh, I uh, like citing is smart cities right so smart cities generally is uh, is kind of this uh, overarching term uh, that that describes uh, rapid urbanization that's happening across the world and 
And if you accept this premise, how do you make uh, these urban areas more livable? Well, one way is to make them smarter. And so using, using these technologies of uh, sensors, real-time processing, and uh, machine learning, there are some initiatives in Europe, in the US, but I think uh, the country of Singapore has embraced this in a big way. Uh, they have uh, a smart nation initiative that uh, cuts across basically uh, all the all the different uh, areas of Singapore. Uh, so real another area where real time I think is popping up again is e-commerce. I think in the US, e-commerce is a big topic in the US, but maybe not as big a topic in terms of uh, startups and uh, VC funding. But I tell you, Mac, in Asia, Southeast Asia, China, South Asia, and India, uh, e-commerce, particularly on the mobile device, huge topic. So their real-time is important, right? So for real-time uh, uh, logistics, real-time recommendations, and, and security. Um, and then obviously financial services and fintech companies, particularly the payment companies, are another application for these uh, real-time uh, big data processing frameworks. The, the, the data sources are plentiful uh, from smart appliances, wearables, uh, mobile devices. And uh, I think this is less real-time, but who knows? Maybe it'll be real-time. But uh, in Strata San Jose, and I... And I would expect in uh, in uh, other stratas, uh, we have uh, a few talks on uh, companies that do aerial, aerial imaging. So these are usually two buckets for this, drones or satellites, right? And so then uh, if you can do that uh, more often, so then you suddenly have a more real-time picture of your environment, right? So, and then obviously, this is image data, so then now you have to combine some of the things we talked about earlier, like uh, visual mining and deep learning to make sense of all those images. The other interesting thing that has just been uh, something I've noticed over the last few months is the notion of a data center, right? So what is a data center? Well, a data center is a huge warehouse near a hydroelectric plant. <laughs> Right, it's the usual notion, right? <laughs> right? But I think one of the things that uh, 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 people have been pointing out, which I think makes sense, is uh, uh, as some of these environments generate more data, right? So think of a self-driving car, or a building, or an airplane, right? So once they are generating lots and lots of data, they could be. Uh, you could consider. Uh, them many data centers in many ways, right? So, so in many ways, some of these uh, platforms need to look ahead into the future where uh, they have to be simpler, maybe simple enough so that you can stick kind of a mini uh, data center inside a car, right? So, so slim down the slim down your big data architecture enough so that you can stick it somewhere, so that uh, you don't have to rely too much on network. Uh, communication to do all of your uh, data crunching. So I think that's an interesting concept. So I think uh, there are companies who are already kind of designing their uh, architectures around this notion that there will be a proliferation of this uh, uh, data centers, so to speak, right? So, which brings me kind of uh, to one of the themes I covered before, which is these uh, ecosystem, ecosystem of uh, largely open source big data components. I think in that area, Spark remains super popular. 
partly because I think just like in many other uh, areas of technology, I think API is uh, important. And so as Spark has grown popular, its API has kind of spread across the uh, big data landscape. And so uh, I think that uh, it might be a few years before we see Spark kind of uh, uh, be dislodged, if I were to predict, now that the people have been programming to the Spark API. And also, to be fair, the Spark community is moving fast, right? So they keep adding uh, libraries to their machine learning uh, component, but also improving their core components for SQL and stream processing. So for example, this is going to be a big year for Spark streaming. There's a lot of resources being devoted to that. So I talked about the need to simplify some of these uh, 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 big data frameworks. So one of the things that the, I've noticed recently is uh, hybrid systems, so a system that's is capable of doing more than one thing. So, I so people have been kind of uh, thinking about you know convenience versus performance, right? So, what if I have an engine that's eighty percent as good but can do three things, eighty percent as good as in in each of the three dimensions or two dimensions, right? So, I think that uh, uh, we're seeing a lot of that. So, particularly, I think uh, engines that can do streaming and batch engines that can do search and SQL, interactive analysis and search, and then er engines that combine uh, the ability to do transactions and analysis. Um, but I think uh, one, one area where kind of uh, companies have uh, turned to to kind of address some of this complexity of uh, the explosion of choices and proliferation of choices in uh, in uh, architecting big data platforms is, is the cloud, right? So definitely there's a trend towards uh, companies embracing the cloud. So not just small startups in the Bay Area, but even enterprises, but maybe not everything they do goes to the cloud, but bits and pieces of it. And one area that seems to be open to being moved to the cloud is analysis. And uh, it's interesting though, as you talk to uh, entrepreneurs and, and uh, companies, they always point out the distinction between cloud infrastructure, so running on the cloud hardware and the cloud components, because uh, each of these major cloud vendors have components that mimic uh, some of the big data components that are on the outside. So for example, Google just announced a few days ago an amazing array of uh, cloud machine learning products, right? So, But there's still companies who are reticent to fully use the components that the cloud providers provide because they don't want to be locked into uh, one cloud provider. So what ends up happening is they go to the cloud and then they use, uh, they still end up using the open source components that uh, they would use on the outside. They just uh, run on the cloud infrastructure. Uh, but the cloud has implications too in terms of architecture because it's uh, there's definitely architectural considerations for building these data applications in the cloud, but also for hiring, because uh, uh, maybe the skill set might be a little uh, different as you look to the cloud. Another big topic recently, maybe this is just me because I'm personally interested in it, but I think also you can see it from submissions at Strata and from and from people's actions in many ways and their choices in terms of their career, right? So this is the general area of uh, 
I'd say I would call it ethics and data for good, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, for example, data scientists have, have been talking about the proliferation of algorithms has implications around fairness, right? So because uh, algorithms are not depend on the, on the people who who design them, but also on the type of data they get fed, right? So if you're training data inadvertently privileges one group over another, then that's something you have to guard against, right? So then the other thing around algorithms is transparency. So at some point, I think uh, some of these deep learning algorithms, if they get challenged, it'll be around this area of transparency because they're just hard to understand. They're black boxes, right? So, So there's definitely domains where Transparency matters, right? So think of credit risk profiling, right? So you need to actually understand how uh, someone's credit score gets generated. Um, so, so that's an area that uh, actually is of interest and that people are looking at. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, this area of transparency from a general data perspective, I think is uh, always gets uh, popular, particularly because people want to understand how polls and surveys get constructed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So, but uh, I think the, from polls and surveys, I think people's attention towards algorithms, I think, get focused as well. And then, so I talked about ethics, but also data for good. So I would say uh, there's two areas that I'm following. One is the people who volunteer uh, and uh, donate their time. So at Strata, we are partners with an organization called DataKind. Uh, with, and there are many similar organizations which uh, provides an infrastructure for data scientists and data experts to volunteer their time to uh, the public sector and also to uh, nonprofits. But also, I, I would say under Data for Good, there's a bunch of people who are now working on uh, things that they care about, right? So I think healthcare is is an area and, and medicine is an area where people who uh, were pioneers in early data science and data engineering have started to turn their attention to. I have this example, actually, of an early picture of the early days of Cloudera. I think there were maybe on the order of eight people in this founding team. And if you look at that picture, I would say maybe three or four have already shifted their attention to uh, genomics or healthcare or medicine. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which which tells you something. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I guess this is actually not this doesn't tie into the last topic, but uh, one topic that I think that uh, I would like to pay more attention to myself is hardware, because in uh, as you get into in these intelligent applications, then uh, hardware acceleration, uh, GPUs, FPGAs, maybe even uh, application-specific integrated circuits, these ASICs matter, but also some of these new options for storage. So I think that uh, I'm going to pay more close attention to that, and let's see if if that's something that other people in the data community will start paying uh, closer attention to as well. So. so you mentioned hardware is sort of an on-the-rise topic. Are there others, or do you feel that the ones you've outlined are really those ones that are also on the horizon in addition to being present issues no i think that i think uh, generally i think uh, the convergence of real-time processing at scale and then these intelligent uh, applications right so those are the things that excite me the most and i think those are the things that are uh, on the rise in many ways 
I think there's topics that are part of that pipeline, right? So if you look at the intelligent uh, real-time data application, if you go from end-to-end, you go from the data collection, the sensors, all the way to the user interface at the end, right? So how are you going to interact with the AI? So I think it's quite an exciting time to be working in data because uh, there's many areas you can contribute. If you're interested in infrastructure, you can do that. If you're interested in intelligence and machine learning, you can do that. If you're interested in uh, user interface issues, there's a lot to do there as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. You can reach Ben on Twitter at Big Data. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 